0: Hello, I'm Stephen Buckley and we're in a series working our way through the grand narrative of the Bible, from Eden to Zion, in which you will build a biblical worldview to function by as a Christian and mature in your relationship with Christ Jesus having taken a substantial detour since chapter two of Genesis to step back and develop in our understanding of the aspects that make up the biblical worldview. So God's law and order, the canvas of existence or what we call the field of play with its historical and eschatological narrative and the players or characters that are active within so that we can understand who the Creator God is, how he has designed and established his universe, his boundaries, how we are to interact with others and so forth. And today we are turning to Genesis 3, the pivotal moment in the history of man up until the cross. Understand what took place in the garden and you better understand the questions of suffering, of temptation, of judgment, of the devil's schemes, of the nature of man, of the foundation of the gospel, and you blame God less for your own circumstance. Such is the significance of what took place today will be the first part, uh, verses one to 16, with part two airing shortly after. Grab your Bibles. We're going to be patient with the text and let the questions and answers soak in and simmer. Let's place the scene and imagine the setting. Days after creation, it was a fresh spring afternoon, and Adam, the anointed priest king of Eden, would walk through the garden sanctuary from the east, the rivers flowing around him. And as he approached the holy mountain of the Lord, he had two very obvious choices, a tree that would bring life or a tree that would bring about death. Satan set out to remove the human king of Eden and prevent God's plans of expanding it globally. If he could sit on the throne of Eden, perhaps he too could sit on the throne in heaven. Genesis 3, the temptation scene, is the third of seven scenes that began with Genesis 2. We read, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. This creature is the Hebrew word for serpent. It doesn't name the serpent. This tempter appears in animal form and verbally communicates with cunningness. This isn't just a serpent but a clever, sharp, shrewd, talking serpent with high intellect and knowledge that surpasses the man and woman. In the book of Numbers, we'll come across the donkey who God opened the mouth of to speak, and here we witness a serpent who is speaking. It begs the question then, who is animating the serpent? It doesn't explicitly say it's Satan, but as Wenham notes, early Jewish and Christian commentators identified the snake with Satan or the devil. Revelation 20 reads, the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil, and Satan. In chapter 12, the great dragon, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan the deceiver. I then will use the term serpent, Satan and the devil interchangeably. Angels will usually appear as a man, but here Satan appears as a serpent. Angel means messenger. Satan is designed in part to deliver messages from God as a representative of God and therefore in the form of a man reflecting his creator. Instead he arrives with his own message representative of himself in the form of a serpent reflecting his new creaturely character. Either he manifests as a serpent or he possesses a serpentine creature or he brings a serpent into the garden and somehow deceives Adam and his wife to believe the serpent is the one speaking to them. Walter Kaiser Jr, um, who I really appreciate, he argues that the serpent is probably a title, not a particular shape he has assumed or the instrument he borrowed to manifest himself. But the serpent is categorised as a beast of the field, which makes no sense if Satan appears as a man or it's referring to his actual status of an angelic being. Why would he be compared to other animals and be described as more crafty than any other? He's not described as more crafty than any other angelic creature. He's more crafty than any other beast of the field. Also, we must ask, why would he be given this title apart from manifesting as a natural serpent? Were serpents originally naturally crafty or cunning? No, you can't apply the trait to Satan from the serpent. The serpent is crafty because Satan is appearing as one. The serpent could not originally be associated with Satan. Satan is now associated with the serpent and vice versa and referred to as the ancient serpent because of his initial trickery in the form of one. There is a connection with the Hebrew word for serpent and the Hebrew word for bronze, which could indicate a shiny, luminous appearance which would arrest the woman's attention. Hamilton also notes that there is a connection between the Hebrew word for serpent and a Hebrew verb meaning to practice divination. Already we have a picture of something slightly sinister. We are not told the name, but we are told about the character and the origin of the serpent. Firstly, the character of the serpent is described, as we've read, more crafty than any other, or the most cunning. Not just a little bit crafty, but the most, more than any other. This is an undesirable characteristic in stark contrast to being more wise than any other. This definite characterization of a person within the Hebrew narrative is unusual, as if Moses is telling us to pay special attention to this character. He is not what he appears. This word crafty or cunning can be translated as shrewd, which can be positive and account for wisdom, but shrewdness misused turns to deception. There is a connection with crafty associated with wisdom and man's search of wisdom in the fall. The serpent's craftiness, wisdom, led to the certain wisdom the couple received. So I like that it's translated as crafty or cunning because of what is about to play out. But know that Satan, as the serpent, was once shrewd for God, but now chosen to be shrewd for his own gain. The previous verse, the last verse of chapter 2, uses the word naked so here the use of crafty is a Hebrew play on words. Salehammer says the link provides an immediate clue to the potential relationship between the serpent's cunning and the innocence implied in the nakedness of the couple. So there are clues from verse 1 as to what is about to take place. So that's his character. Secondly, with regards his origin, verse 1 tells us that he is a creature that the Lord God had made. The Lord God has no rival. Good and evil do not have dual and parallel origins. In the beginning, there were not two. In the beginning, God. No door is open to label the serpent as divine. Described as an animal created by God underscores his subjection under the sovereignty of the Creator. Genesis 3 leaves no room for alternative deities. Why did he manifest or possess a creature, and not appear as a handsome and sophisticated man before the woman? Well, one consideration is that Adam and his wife were naked. If he appeared as a man wearing clothes, they may raise suspicions, even questions, as to why he felt the need to cover himself. I doubt that he would tempt in the appearance of a naked man. Perhaps he thought that if he came as something other than a man, a creature lower than her, he would be no threat to Adam's authority, no threat to the family unit. Adam, too, would not feel threatened by a talking snake rather than another man. After all, Adam thought that he was the only man, so it would raise suspicions. Yeah? Where's this man come from? And why is he speaking to my wife? <laughs> right? Whatever Satan's crafty reasoning, he chooses to enter the garden as a serpent. His craftiness would not match God's. His show of evil would be used to show good. This scene is within the secure boundaries of the Garden of Eden, but the serpent is a beast of the field, not the garden. The habitat of the beasts of Eden were the field of Eden beyond the garden. It is highly likely the garden is off limits for the beasts. What then is the serpent doing? in the garden was this the moment of the fall of satan was this the first bold transgression of satan that led to his status being declared evil moses would go on to classify according to the word of god serpents as unclean animals in leviticus 11 and deuteronomy 14. that would be long after but by the same author and long before this noah was aware which animals were clean and which were unclean to prepare them to board the ark it could be a post-fall classification, though the creation account clearly distinguishes between domesticated animals, which likely graze the garden, and the beasts of the field outside of. Adam, having named all the animals, would be aware this reptilian serpent was a beast of the field and straying from its natural habitat, likely off limits. Verse 1 continues, and here we witness the dialogue between the serpent and the woman. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, there is only two of them in the garden they are not difficult to find why would the serpent approach the woman and not the man or both of them the serpent understands the nature of man namely the differences between the sexes and so he challenges the woman because she is the more agreeable vulnerable more sensitive one he goes for the weak spot his first aim is for the weaker vessel. As we've seen in the previous two studies, it has nothing to do with intellect but the nature of women. Men have been designed to take leadership and are therefore more likely to be detached from emotions, are less easy to manipulate and so forth. What's more is that she was not given the law directly from God, so she may begin to question her husband who delivered the law to her, Satan also knows that if he can persuade the woman to remove herself from the covering and place of submission to her husband, then one step further would be to remove herself from the covering and place of submission to God. In fact, the first step involves the second. Did God actually say? I quoted this in the series introduction and I even mentioned it in the previous teaching. This is the apparently innocent question that leads down the slippery slope to Sheol. Not did the Lord God say, nor did God say, but the sceptical, did God actually say? Or as some translate, did God really say? It amplifies any incredulity and distrust of God's word in the mind of the woman. It makes her question what God did say. The serpent's opening line is less of a question than it is a poke at the word of God with feigned with shock to cause confusion. Did God really say? You know, this smooth talker sounds pleasant, even helpful. If the serpent was British, there might have even been a hint of sarcasm on his split tongue. Did he? Did, did God really say, did he? <laughs> you know. The serpent is deliberately distorting God's words in saying, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? God prohibited only one tree, not all of them, not any tree. Satan reverses the truth that their permission far outweighs their prohibition. This talking serpent is flipping the freedom versus limitation ratio, suggesting they are victims. They have much freedom and little limitation, and now it seems like little freedom and much limitation. There will have been hundreds if not thousands of trees in the garden, with just one off-limits. He placed emphasis on what they are prohibited to eat, tiny percentage, subtly ignoring all of the freedom they have. The opposite of counting your blessings, counting your prohibitions. This is the tactic, to paint God as an oppressive, overly protective, grossly jealous, controlling beast and almost as if he has set up the tree as a trap in the garden. He's mentally closed the boundaries of the garden in on the couple as if it's a small garden and this tree is the centrepiece, as if their only choice to live truly free is to eat from the forbidden tree recognize the tactics of satan and here is another tactic satan does not use god's name yahweh even though the verse before in the narration does within this chapter alone the, the narration uses lord god yahweh elohim nine times but satan only refers to him as god elohim not yahweh Elohim. He intentionally distances God by removing his name, making sin appear less personal. He removes the personal nature and implies ambiguity of the Creator and Covenant Maker. Which God? Which distant Creator? The serpent is addressing the woman, but he is, in a sense, speaking to the man also he will entice the man to sin by using his wife adam is his primary target and therefore as hamilton points out you in you shall not eat you will not surely die when you eat you will be he uses the plural form of the verb so he is speaking to the woman but he's speaking over her to her husband also you both When you both eat in a moment, you both will be like God. This is the woman's opportunity to contend for the word of God and correct the serpent. If Adam is in earshot, which it suggests he was, this is his opportunity too. The woman attempts to correct, but gets it wrong. First, she acts as the spokesperson in place of Adam using the plural we we may eat satan uses the plural you but directs it at the woman and then the woman takes the leadership in saying we may eat she should defer to her husband but instead assumes the position of declaring the law of the land she is right in saying that she can eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden but she omits every every garden tree god said You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. There is a slight difference in saying, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, and we may surely eat of every tree of the garden. She adopts the posture of counting the prohibition. The serpent paints God as authoritarian and a little cruel, and she adds a brushstroke. The woman too follows Satan's use of God, Elohim, dropping the personal Yahweh God. She doesn't use his name. She mirrors the serpent in distancing Yahweh from the conversation. When she refers to the instruction about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, firstly, she is not specific which tree. Both the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil were in the midst of the garden so she is not clear secondly she adds to the law neither shall you touch it lest you die god did not say they couldn't touch it just not eat of it this small embellishment of god's word opens the door to more considerable errors mankind is obsessed with adding and subtracting from god's word when you add You detract. The scriptures warn us, You shall not add to the word that I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, that I command you. Deuteronomy 4, 2. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. Deuteronomy 12, 32. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. Proverbs 36. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. Revelation 22, 18-19. You could accidentally touch something, but you couldn't accidentally eat the fruit of the tree. I could die simply by leaning on the wrong tree. How harsh is that? No, God has given you much freedom and distinct choice to decide if you want to disobey. You can't just go for a jog through the garden, take a breather up against a tree and, oh, now I'm dead. Is there even a suggestion in the woman's tone that God is a little harsh for the death sentence? she does not ask satan how he knew about any prohibition who are you how do you know this stuff she could have said actually god did not say he said and quoted him verbatim She has only heard the law from adam unless yahweh reiterated to both in an earlier meeting but we're not told that so we assume the law was only given to adam before uh, his wife was created and then he taught her the law could adam have communicated it incorrectly it's fairly short to remember it's not as though he's remembering the torah off by heart so we'll give him the benefit of doubt did his wife misinterpret the instructions is she is she then deceived into calling into question god's law and gets flustered in the confusion Did Adam add to the instructions when teaching his wife not to touch the tree as as an extra barrier to protect her? Did he say, we are not to eat of the tree, but let's be safe and let's not go near it, don't touch it, which could be a sensible thing to do? Um, But if true and dependent on how he delivered his message, this addition may have caused, in part, the woman to misstate God's word. The days of dialogue between the couple are not for us to know, but pondering questions like this can help us identify where we may go wrong. So she assumed leadership, depersonalised the creator-lawgiver. She edits the law, the Word of God. She is unclear about the Word of God and finally adds to the Word of God. This is the first conversation about God and His Word and it's not a good one. Satan has the last word and presents himself as the one telling the truth and that it is God who was deceiving them. You will not surely die. Satan knows that they will not die physically immediately, which is true. But he's twisting God's words because that's not entirely what God meant. Also, their eyes will be opened. And they do, in a sense, become like God. He twists the meaning of God's word. He doesn't directly tell the woman to disobey God. He doesn't tell her to eat from the tree nor is he lying directly. In one sense, what he says is true, but completely disingenuous and deceptive. Half-truths are the tool of seduction, masquerading as the whole truth. Lots of information, but little accuracy in waxing untruth. As a reader, it makes us question, what did God mean by dying, by eyes being opened, by becoming like God? We know the way he is positioning his statement is wrong, but it keeps us gripped to find out how. Satan wanted to be like God. He's presenting himself as God to her, and he's enticing her to follow his ways. We can all become gods. And once he's removed the threat of death, Satan convinces her that sin is to protect God rather than herself. In flipping the motive, he pretends that God doesn't want us as knowledgeable competition. Judgment from God then is flipped to become blessing. This pattern is still being used today to encourage sinful behaviour. As Prager puts it, exaggerate, then denigrate the other side's motive, then promise a reward. He is saying that she can be more than she is. Hamilton says that deification, which is when a person is treated like a god, is a fantasy difficult to repress and a temptation hard to reject. The pull of social media celebrity status plays into that fantasy. All she has to do is decide her own will is going to override her devotion to God's will she is beginning to conceive that she can ascend above the limitations imposed on her by her creator. He began with feigned shock and now goes in for the kill, asserting his explanation. He plays down the reason for God forbidding eating from the tree. He points to God's words, then he points to how God was thinking when he delivered his words. For God knows that when you eat, he behaves as though he knows God's inner thoughts and lords his supposed superior knowledge over the woman to dogmatically imply that God didn't mean what he said. He is saying judgment won't follow transgression of God's word, no blessings follow transgression. You'll be godlike, knowing good and evil. You will see clearly. This way, you, you too, Adam, could fulfill your true potential and destiny. <laughs> The serpent is implying God was keeping this knowledge from the man and the woman, rather than God was keeping this knowledge for the man and the woman. What more good could they have required than being placed at the heart of the very good creation? Rather than trusting God to provide all the good they need, could God have left an extra bit of knowledge of good they questioned? An exchange of misquotation, denial and slander. The serpent only speaks twice and not in the form of a long complex Shakespearean philosophical soliloquy. One question followed by a couple of short assertions was all it took to undermine God's authority and trust in his provision. Rather than relying on God we allow our feelings to run away from us and base the foundation of a new truth on ourselves, my truth. In suppressing the truth, we create a God in our own image, one that we feel comfortable with, one that allows us to continue in our sin. Convinced our reward is around the corner, the reality will eventually hit that the Lord God will appear for an account. This is the breakdown of order and harmony in the garden. Order turns to disorder. Harmony gives way to friction. Security and assurance turns to suspicion. And every day since, man has repeated Satan's mantra, did God really say? Today, Even Christians are spouting Satan's words. Did God really say? We question from the wrong posture. We aren't clear on what was said. We edit out the blessings and abundant provision. We add to his word our tradition and paint God as an impersonal, harsh master or a fluffy, timid person, void of the severity of his wrath. We won't accept God's word. We want to be like God god verse six kicks off scene four the central scene of the seven it climaxes with the couple eating and it begins with the woman taking initiative so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise she took of its fruit and ate We mentioned in our study of Genesis 2 that the forbidden tree is adorned with good fruit. The fruit does not contain poison, nor is it an eyesore in the midst of the garden. It is, as the woman acknowledges, aesthetically pleasing. The tree is not bad or evil. The tree was pleasant to look at and good for food. A married person may say, well, this other person is pleasant to look at and sex is good. But it's outside the boundaries of God's law. In the woman's eyes it was that this tree was to be desired to make one wise that most aroused her attention. We are not told what type of fruit she ate. This tree could have its own unique kind of fruit and therefore wouldn't be known today and would make no sense to name it, and it would therefore stand out from the rest of the trees in the garden so that there was no confusion as to which one it was. If it was one of the common trees today, and the scriptures told us which one, I suspect many would would dare not eat from it, and they'd probably all be burned by now. And then stories would develop of men hiding away the last forbidden trees and unhelpful mysteries of these trees would be written about, as you can imagine. The only tree mentioned is a fig tree, but it doesn't fit that they covered themselves with leaves from the tree that they've just eaten from. Often is depicted as an apple, as an apple tree, because the Latin word for evil is similar to apple. Tradition has it that the pomegranate has approximately 613 seeds that represent the 613 distinct commands in the Torah, which is a very cool connection, if true, and it is why I used a picture of pomegranates in the thumbnail image for this video, but I'm not convinced. Revelation 22 says that the future tree of life will have 12 kinds of fruit. Perhaps the original tree of life also had 12 kinds of fruit. We are left to wonder, and that is how God has decided to leave it. They should not have known what it tastes like, and we are not to know what the tree was. John, in his first epistle, warns his fellow Christians of lust and pride by hearkening back to this garden scene. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. That's 1 John 2, 15 to 17. Some translate desire as lust, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. She saw that the tree was good for food, enticed in her thoughts about the reward of its taste and how satisfying it may be. The desires are the lust of the flesh. It was a delight to the eyes, enticed by its colours and attractive design. The desires are the lust of the eyes. She thought that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Oh, how her husband may respect her knowledge above his. The pride of life. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life are what separate us from God. When we fall into temptation, we make a law unto ourselves, and eat the fruit thereof. Rather than fellowship with God, fellowship with the devil, that ancient serpent. The woman ate, removing herself from the covering of her husband and God. She sought her will over God's revealed will, extension of limits over set boundaries, autonomy over submission, rebellion over obedience in a person. She assumes the role not just of her husband but of God, assuming the role of knowing good. This isn't general rebellion. The scriptures could have just said they disobeyed God. The scene is a quest for pseudo-godliness, a quest for wisdom and the good apart from God's provision. Yet true godliness is an expression of Godly character. Asana says, the deceptive nature of the serpent's appeal lay in its interpretation of godliness, which it equated with defiance of God's will, with power rather than strength of character. Verse 6 continues, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. The description of the first sin within verse 6 is apparently an extremely difficult pronunciation, making it impossible to skim-read and calling the reader to pay close attention. She makes her own judgment without asking her husband. Her mind will decide apart from her husband's word and God's word. Having tasted the delicious fruit with no consequence in sight, the woman then passed it to her husband. We can identify the fatal steps – she saw, she took, she gave. If you don't correct attitude, you move to the next step of engaging in fantasy – walking a treacherous line. If you don't pull back, you will fall into temptation, outwardly sin, and entice others to – or at least present the temptation for others. Oswald says the human problem is that we will not accept God's gifts within the limits imposed by him. We wish to be God dispensing the gifts. Satan too wants to be a God giving gifts to the woman. The woman then wants to be the one giving the gift to Adam. Questioning the words of God, seeing his wife did not drop down dead, without hesitation he fell into temptation. She doesn't say a word. She does not try to tempt the man vocally. She just takes and gives. She offers the man, and he takes no questions asked. He raises no questions, neither rebukes her. He doesn't approve. We are simply told he ate. She usurps leadership. He passively abdicates. As Hamilton says, hers is the sin of initiative. His is the sin of acquiescence. He just goes with it, perhaps even reluctantly, without question. He ate is the midpoint of the central scene. It is at this very point that everything changes. This is the climax of the climactic scene. He ate removing himself from God's covering and submitting to Satan. This is the pivotal moment that has affected mankind ever since. It is termed by Christians as the fall of man or the fall for short. This is the first instance when man wanted to be godlike. Being made in the image of his likeness was not enough. They wanted moral autonomy. They wanted to be gods. Proverbs 1.32 says, Therefore they shall eat the fruit of their way and have their fill of their own devices. When studying Genesis 2 in video number 6 titled The Garden of God, roughly 56 minutes in, I made the case that the classic passages within Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 are not referring to the fall of Satan. In fact, I understand they are referring to the fall of man, merging the story with the king of Tyre and the Babylonian king, respectively. Regarding Isaiah 14, with the target verses being 12 to 14, the emphasis here is human pride, not angelic pride, and that is how Uh, the great expositors of the Reformation under study, as do some highly regarded scholars today. It's possible that Adam is the day star or morning star, son of dawn, the title we gave to Satan with the Latin translation Lucifer. It would make sense if the first Adam of the newly created Eden, morning star, son of dawn, fell from heaven, then the last Adam would be referred to as the bright morning star in the context of the newly restored Eden. Where the first morning star failed, the last morning star will fulfill. Let me demonstrate that Jesus is depicted returning to the earth as the morning star and the sun rising upon the earth. He said, the Lord came from Mount Sinai and dawned from Seir upon us. He shone forth from Mount Paran that's Deuteronomy 33 in the book of Numbers the messianic prophecy calls him a star chapter 24 arise shine for your light has come and the glory of the Lord rises upon you the Lord will arise upon you nations shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising Isaiah 60 for behold the day is coming burning like an oven The sun of righteousness shall rise, Malachi 4. His brightness was like the light, Habakkuk 3. Jesus said, I am the light of the world, John 9. Referring to his return, he said, For as the lightning, a beam of light, comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man, Matthew 24 until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts 2nd peter 1 the morning star revelation 2 the bright morning star revelation 22. for me in isaiah 14 adam was the son of first dawn of creation the day star and the last adam jesus is our bright shining hope the bright morning star who will be the son of the dawn of new creation the focus passage of ezekiel 28 namely verses 11 to 19 is essentially a picture of paradise lost again because of the human condition of pride this priest king misrepresented god and will will therefore be removed from his position and land adam as described in this passage was the signet of perfection full of wisdom and perfect in beauty and he's now a signet of pride. He's become worldly wise and smeared the reflective beauty of the Lord. We read, your heart was proud because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom for the sake of your splendor. Pride always goes before a fall. Adam is endowed with status, wisdom, beauty, wealth, every opportunity for greatness. For priestly duties, he was adorned with every precious stone as a covering crafted in gold, settings and engravings. Yet he wanted something more. They could have eaten from all but one tree in paradise. They had no financial stress, no hunger, no physical ailments, no groans to be relieved from suffering. But we always want more to satisfy our lust and pride. There is a story about John B. Rockefeller, widely considered the wealthiest American of all time and the richest person in modern history, who, when asked by a reporter how much money is enough, he responded, just a little more. Mankind has proved to be obsessed with choice and knowledge rather than boundaries and innocence. The kings that follow Adam including the king of Tyre of Ezekiel 28 and the king of Babylon of Isaiah 14 would build upon this pride. As John Oswald beautifully puts, the frightful nature of this kind of pride is seen in the fact that it would prefer the world to be a desert in its own hands than a garden in the hands of someone else. In fact, the capacity to destroy and oppress becomes a source of pride. This is perversion at its plainest. The man described as blameless is now blameworthy. Now unrighteousness was found in him. We can't expound and apply every word or phrase in these passages to Adam because, again, the authors are merging the story of the fall of man with the story of the fall of the kings of their day. But rarely does one come across the connection with these passages when studying the fall of man. What is interesting is that there isn't haranguing prose of the thoughts of the man and woman, or the serpent for that matter nor does it present them in some sort of crisis in which they would have to make a decision. As if not only are they individuals, but representatives of the story of humanity. Their story is our personal and collective story. Their rebellion demonstrates they truly have free choice, free moral agents. It wasn't a a facade. God wasn't bluffing. Adam failed in the roles God bestowed upon him. Adam failed as the son of God. In the position of son, he smeared the image of the heavenly father. Rather than the sons and daughters of Adam as righteous and regal, now they would inherit sin and inherit a very different kingdom. Adam failed in his priestly king role. Adam failed as the garden priest to keep watch, to guard the garden sanctuary. As priest, he failed to preserve order and distinctions. Now they would begin to unravel. Chaos and transgression of distinctions now have a foothold. God gave to Adam, and Adam was to deliver the word of God to his wife precisely and in the correct interpretive manner. They were declaring independence from their creator, King God. their their mistrust of God's faithfulness, seeking out their own desires. As Adam submitted to Satan, he chose to remove himself from God's covering and place himself under the rule and covering of Satan. Adam, the king of Eden, effectively handed his crown to the serpent. This legal transfer means that Satan now has dominion over the land rather than man. The priest-king aspect of the image distorted. Adam failed as prophet of God. He should have stepped in and spoken on behalf of God. Adam failed as bridegroom. He should have protected his bride. He failed to die to his own desires and sacrifice himself in order to guard the garden from Satan, from sin and the deathly consequences. He failed to protect and save his bride from the serpent and her own sin the bride was deceived, but the bridegroom wasn't. Commenting on 1 Timothy, Mount says, the implication of the Genesis account is that Adam was present, watched his wife being deceived, was not deceived himself, and yet said nothing. He let her assume the headship and priestly king role. He could have stepped in at several opportunities. He could not have taken the fruit from his wife when she offered. He could have rebuked her for eating. He could have grabbed the fruit from her hand and stopped her from eating and led her away from the tree and from the serpent. He could have corrected the serpent's words. He could have corrected his bride's words. He could have said, step back, I'll deal with the serpent. But what he should have done was capture that serpent and kick it out of the garden, or perhaps he should have put the serpent on a stick and then investigate how an evil talking serpent slithered into the garden and report and inquire of the Lord God on the matter. Interestingly, in Numbers 30, we see the introduction of statutes that the Lord commanded Moses about a man and his wife and about a father and his daughter while she is in her youth within her father's house. Throughout these 16 verses, we see that the husband is responsible for the vow his wife makes if he stands by and does not say anything that same day. The same goes for a father whose daughter is living at home. But if her husband makes them null and void on the day that he hears them, then whatever proceeds out of her lips concerning her vows or concerning her pledge of herself shall not stand. Her husband has made them void and the Lord will forgive her. But if he makes them null and void after he has heard of them, then he shall bear her iniquity. Adam failed to protect his bride and immediately make her comments null and void. Adam failed, but Jesus will step in on that day and forgive her having borne her iniquity. Verse 7 tells us of the immediate result and response. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. She listened to the voice of the serpent over her husband. He listened to the voice of his wife over God. And there are immediate consequences. Notice the consequences are only described after he ate. Their eyes were opened, the serpent was correct, but in a very different way than they expected. In light of ravaging wolves, Jesus told his disciples to be wise or shrewd as serpents, in terms of self-preservation and not being naive to complement dove-like vulnerability and openness in serving others. The serpent is described as shrewd, and they follow his kind of shrewdness, but in doing so, immediately realise their nakedness. (laughs) This was not the blessing they fantasised over. How foolish they must have felt. They thought their eyes being opened would glean a wisdom and knowledge to be like God, knowing good and evil. Now they stood next to each other, and they were aware they were nude a certain knowledge of good and evil that did not elevate them, but separate them from God. Salehammer observes that the Hebrew for naked in chapter 2 verse 25 is slightly different than naked here in verse 7. Here in uh, chapter 3, this same word was used by Moses when referring to the exiles of Israel who have come under the judgment of God. Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies whom the Lord will send against you in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and lacking everything. He will put a yoke of iron on your neck until he has destroyed you. Deuteronomy 28. They were naked also in the sense that they have come under the judgment of God, having been given an abundance of all things, but did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart. They have lost a certain innocence and feel a sense of shame of their nakedness. If Satan appeared as a naked man, they would be startled to realise he was naked too. Instead, the serpent's tongue continues to flick as he hangs among the trees. They stepped outside the boundaries of man. They transgressed God's covenant. They discovered mysteries that were forbidden for man to know. They refused to stay within ordained limits and wanted to be limitless like God. Immediately, they became aware of their nakedness, their childlike innocence removed from their senses. Now sexuality would become erotic. I once heard a preacher say, if you don't think there is a difference between sexual intercourse that is divine opposed to profane, try praying beforehand and asking God to bless the sex. (laughs) They knew about sex for procreation in an innocent sense. Now the erotic aspects of human sexuality become apparent. Rather than calling on God, they tried to save the day themselves. Having removed themselves from the spiritual covering of God, they attempted to cover themselves with leaves from the trees to hide their shame. Man was made from the earth. The garment of vegetation was given to the earth for a covering, and now man covers himself with this garment of vegetation. It's ironic, then, that he will become the earth, returning to it in death. Your covering was God living upon the vegetation, and you chose an alternative covering of vegetation, and soon you'll be sent under it. Oh, you want to be under the covering of vegetation? Well, I'll help you with that. (laughs) Choose your coverings wisely. They don't seek the Lord. As guilt kicks in, they try to cover over their guilt, their shame, their sin themselves. They self-cover in an attempt to self-atone. They would require garments of skin reckoned with blood we are told they use fig leaves perhaps the largest leaves of the garden or the part of the garden they were in they wouldn't want to a kind of casual jog through this massive garden up the mountain naked they accomplish the covering of themselves but they cannot paper over their sin they are not acquitted are they covering themselves from each other yes but are they perhaps covering themselves more so knowing they will have to stand before their lord god creator naked They can hide their body, but they cannot hide from God. Covering themselves shows that they knew their relationship with their creator had changed forever. Fellowship would now not be naked, but separated by clothes that represent innocence lost. In Genesis 1, regarding his creation, we read that God saw that it was good Here in Genesis 3, we read the woman saw that the tree was good. In Genesis 2, God takes the rib of the man and now the woman takes the fruit of the tree. God made all that man requires and now they make loincloths. As well as directly disobeying God's word, this pattern expresses a desire to be like God. Claiming the fruit to be wise They became fools. The West today claims to be wise. We we see, we take, we make out and beyond God's covering. We are the most foolish we've ever been. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden reality hits the garden home he is not god the distant creator impersonal and ambiguous but yahweh god who personally walks the garden adam and his wife recognized his voice or sound Perhaps Yahweh is singing or whistling praise. Perhaps they hear the sound of his sickle cutting through branches as he walks like the owner of a vineyard coming for his harvest. (laughs) Or perhaps it's simply the sound of his footsteps through the garden. What is apparent is that they didn't wonder, who is this? They recognized his presence because of previous encounters. In my home, I can tell who of my family is walking into a room without looking. By the sound of their presence, I know which of my sons is about to appear from the speed and the sound of their footsteps and the muttering of their breath. I can distinguish between my wife and daughter by hearing them walking. Adam and his wife knew this was Yahweh God. The verb used, as Hamilton explains, suggests iterative and habitual aspects. Wenham too says the text implies a daily chat was the custom. The speed in which the chapters flow indicate it hadn't been long since creation. Therefore, it could not have been a weekly walk, but rather a daily one. Yahweh then would be taking his usual daily walk in the garden at a particular time. In the cool of the day or the breeze of the day means as the sun was going down this was an early evening walk as the sun begins to set this was a time of sacrifice and offering in later temple sanctuaries which was called being in the presence of god indeed this term for walking is employed when speaking of god's presence in the sanctuary did adam hide after sinning rather than go and serve in the sanctuary and make offerings to the Lord at the proper time. And when he didn't show up, the Lord wondered where he was. Of course he knew where they were, but it would give the Lord a secondary reason to ask of his whereabouts. These are the things that I ponder. Sailhammer suggests a connection with the word sound and the Lord's call to obedience throughout torah we witness the sound of the lord as his presence comes at mount sinai when the lord came they heard the sound of the trumpet exodus 20:18), and they said if we hear the voice of the lord our god any anymore we shall die deuteronomy 5 25. the sound of the lord is an immediate call for order and accountability Now, others have suggested that rather than the plain reading of the sound of the Lord walking through the garden, the couple heard the sound of mighty winds, like his presence came in a tornado of judgment, similar to that of the presence of the Lord coming upon Sinai in smoke and thunder. So, for example, uh, Geoffrey Niehaus translates the verse as, Then the man and his wife heard the thunder of Yahweh God going back and forth in the garden in the wind of the storm now i can picture this however that they recognize the sound of his presence means they would have been familiar with however he appeared so if he came in a mighty wind of judgment they wouldn't have recognized this sound what's more is that there's no mention of the couple unable to stand because of the wind or, or the deafening sound like sinai and therefore. I favour a more traditional understanding. Um, Not that he's coming with, with a kind of soft tone and high fives, right? but he's approaching in a familiar way with a firm tone that will demand answers because he wants them to confess. The last use of the phrase, the man and his wife, were the last words of the previous chapter. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, the man and his wife hid themselves, because they were naked and ashamed, albeit with a makeshift covering. The trees of the garden were primarily for fruit to look at in appreciation and as a canopy to serve and guard under, and now they shy away from the open dwelling, hide themselves from the sight of God and his expectation to bear fruit. Even if they hide among the fig trees in an attempt to camouflage themselves, it's ridiculous to think that you can hide from the creator of the trees and of the couple. <laughs> Nothing is concealed from God. Not that they didn't believe he knew where they were. Right? They, they hid in fear from the presence of the Lord God. When my daughter was younger, she once put a pillow over her face when she crossed me. She didn't think that I couldn't see her face. And equally, I didn't come to her steaming with rage. I just walked up to her, trying not to laugh, (laughs) She simply didn't want to face the man to whom she was accountable. It was the Son of God whose presence they feared. They hid their shame, now they hide from Yahweh. They were bold in sin, but now the fear of the Lord returns to the garden of God. We can see that the three phrases, good for food, delight to the eyes, make one wise, is now balanced out with eyes opened, knew they were naked and hid among the trees. Sin promises pleasure, but ultimately produces pain. The narration then moves to the inquest of scene 5. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Lord God, this is personal. The Lord God called to the man. Even though the woman had sinned first, Adam had been given the authority. He was the covering for his wife. He'd been given the instructions, the commandment. He had been warned of the consequences. He then is responsible for the sin in the garden. And for this reason, the Lord calls for Adam, not the woman, nor both of them together. He is the appointed head, the priest king of Eden. He will be held accountable for garden activity knowing precisely where they are he calls to the man where are you (laughs) god is gracious he does not shout them out of their hiding place he doesn't blow them out and again i don't think this question fits if he came in a tornado of thunder he calls to him like a gentle shepherd to lost sheep he intends to draw them out willingly then drive them out of hiding he doesn't ask Why are you hiding? That would draw attention to the folly of their decision to hide from their creator. When God asks a question to elicit information, which he of course already knows, he is giving an opportunity to come clean. The man, and likely the woman, emerges with him sheepishly from their hiding place. The man does not answer the question of where, but why? To be fair, He doesn't say, we heard, we were afraid, we were naked, we hid ourselves, implicating his wife. He refers only to himself. I heard, I was afraid, I was naked, I hid myself. He doesn't fully disclose his reason. He explains he hid because of the consequence of eating from the forbidden tree, that he was naked. (laughs) He skips over the transgression, even though the consequence is evident of it. His reasoning does not even ring true. He had covered himself with an apron of fig leaves and therefore wouldn't be naked before the Lord. So why did he hide? His fear of the Lord having transgressed his commands, not just fear of being naked before him. The Lord gives Adam a second chance to admit his failing by asking directly, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Who? Who told you? Was it it the serpent? Was it the woman? Who told you that you were naked? Did you realise yourself? What is the source of your shame? And without pausing to allow Adam to answer his open question, his second closed question brings to the forefront the transgression. He doesn't immediately charge the man with transgression. He wants him to acknowledge his wrong and confess. Adam's response could have been, yes. (laughs) How many times when confronted with wrong do we go on rambling about the circumstance and play down our involvement? Adam blames both his wife and God, saying the woman whom you gave. It's her fault, it's your fault. She gave me the fruit of the tree and all I did was eat. His defensive manner implies that if God had not made the woman, he wouldn't be in this mess. He presents God's good gift to him as the basis of his trouble. We blame our parents, our financial circumstances. Governments blame their predecessors. Companies blame the markets. We rationalize our crime, it all flows back to Eden. Accountability will come and his days of patience of asking, where are you, will end. The Lord God will call all of man to stand before him and give an account of himself. This is the first case of the trespasser convincing themselves they are the victim. He mentions himself last to play down his part of the matter. And demonstrated in this scene is that the the immediate effect of sin means that man turns on his closest companion and drives a wedge between himself and God. The Lord turns to the woman and again it's a rhetorical question, just one in simple form. What is this that you have done? Her answer is significantly shorter in length than her husband. She just witnessed her husband dig a hole for himself and could have thought, well, I won't do that. But she follows suit with the blame game. She doesn't blame God for creating the serpent and she doesn't blame her husband for not protecting her, but she does push blame over to the serpent for deceiving her. She does admit she ate from the fruit uh, and that she was deceived at least the latter being apparent in the text and confirmed later by Paul, who comments on her being deceived. And as we've seen in the previous two sessions, reasoning for why the principle of male headship must be preserved. To be saved means to be preserved from the danger of destruction. In wider application, we can all be deceived. We can be cheated out of blessings when we step out of God's ordained coverings. As we transition to the penultimate sixth scene of Judgment After Inquest, we note that the serpent of old is not given a chance to respond. The Lord does not inquire of the serpent's sin. Not another word is spoken from the serpent's mouth. The Lord moves straight to judgment, beginning with the serpent before the woman and finally the man. He spoke to the man first to hold him accountable as the head of the family and of mankind. But in judgment, he now speaks in reverse order. We therefore recognize the chiastic pattern in whom the Lord addresses. We have the man first, then he addresses the woman. Then he begins the judgment with the serpent, before the judgment on the woman, and then on the man. As illustrated in this chiastic pattern, when we sin, Satan is at the centre of man's trouble. Satan's tactics to get to the man are frequently through the woman. Man should take leadership and protect the woman from the serpent. Each sinned. The serpent, the devil, Satan sinned against Lord God. The woman sinned against lord god the man sinned against lord god and it's against him it's personal in each judgment god speaks of both function and relationship the serpent is cursed in movement and relationship with the woman the woman pain in childbirth and relationship to husband the man pain in work and relationship to the land God turns to the serpent, the culprit of deception, the father of lies. He who is of a higher order than Adam is dealt with first. I'll read the full judgment and then we'll break it down. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Again, the Lord God, personal. The Lord begins with, because you have done this, echoing verse 13, the serpent deceived me. It begins with what he has done, underscoring the gravity of his actions before decreeing judgment. The serpent was not god and a curse proves his deified mask to be false the serpent or any other combination of polytheistic gods are false too out of the three only the serpent is said to be directly cursed again if this was satan in some kind of angelic form or the form of a man it makes no sense the serpent is cursed in a way that is contrasted to all livestock and all beasts of the field the curse includes some form of physical change to the serpent that results in its belly descending to the ground causing a new form of locomotion for me the serpent Will have been some kind of quadruped a lizard dinosaur dragon creature with legs or appendages that elevated the creature off the ground which would fit with other images of the devil throughout the bible such as a dragon scholars and commentators do not come to an agreement whether it had legs or even wings perhaps now those who lean towards serpents originally having legs include matthew henry john gill alan ross paul et al even a jewish historian joseph said that the curse deprived him of the use of his feet Uh, those who lean against the creature previously having legs include a Wenham a sail hammer Some of my favourite commentators actually. Most commentaries that I've come across do believe there was a physical transformation as I do. I don't blindly abide by my favourite commentators or the consensus. I study as best I can, ask the Holy Spirit to teach me in the process and make my own conclusions knowing I will be held accountable for them. If the serpent already slithered along its belly, what was the point of the curse? Was it purely spiritual? If so, why compare it to creatures which had legs? Pretty much all livestock and beasts of the field, the land animals, have legs. What's more is that the phrase, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field, means a curse will affect all creatures to some degree but much more so on the serpent and as we're about to find out God's judgment will include other physical changes in mankind and the earth if then there are physical changes to many aspects of creation why not the primary offender and I'll return to this point in the next session Why would God change the nature of serpents above all others when it was Satan using the form of a serpent as a tool to deceive? Is that fair on serpents? Well, animals only exist in the context of man given mission to rule the earth. They do not bear the image of God, they are not sacred. That Adam allowed Satan to use the form of a serpent to deceive means that God must make an example of this creature as a living memorial on display to man. Man stands upright and now in stark contrast, the serpent is laid out on the ground. Man points to the heavens, the serpent points to the dirt. The state of the serpent kind is a reminder of what took place in Eden, that judgment includes the physical, and that final judgment is to come. I suspect this serpent form was larger than often depicted, perhaps more like a Komodo dragon. Perhaps he stood on his back legs so that he was upright and eye to eye with man, perhaps to gain confidence in his authority. I'm not a man, I'm not a threat to the sanctuary, but I stand tall like you, but having more knowledge. <laughs> Possible. God's judgment would then mean that he could no longer stand up. Also, without legs, this beast of the field becomes quite useless for man to put to work. I mean, what do you do with snakes? <laughs> a snake show? <laughs> Someone will probably, I don't know, send me a tip-top video of snakes pulling a toy car they're useless that the lord is addressing the serpent means satan must still be in serpent form the immediate physical judgment on the creature means god forces the serpent to change its posture the serpent is prostrated on the ground before the lord god Hamilton makes a reasonable point that if one argues on your belly you shall go means a change to the creature's nature then dust you shall eat must also be a literal decree but does the second part have to be literal if the first part is I'm not sure we all agree the creature will not actually eat dust, but does it have to be entirely symbolic? It's figurative of his new posture of being on his belly. We say phrases like drive as quick as you can and burn some rubber. The first demand is literal, the second is not, but it's figurative of the new state of driving fast the serpent is physically made to lower its body with the removal of legs meaning its mouth is so close to the ground that one could rightly describe it as eating dirt during a, a jiu jujitsu contest it is easy to imagine a commentator describing events saying he took the other guy down to the ground got his arm behind his back pushed his head to the floor and made him eat dirt No one listening would blink an eye, they wouldn't think that he means the man made his opponent eat actual dirt, but it's descriptive, hyperbolic language of what literally took place. It's not just an expression or just a literal transformation, the physical is an expression of subjugation. The serpent's new posture makes him eat dust, so to speak. He tempted the woman to eat, and now he is forced to eat that which the man was made from. There is a universal warning for us all here. Alter your posture before God forces you. Either now or then, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Philippians 2.10 The scriptural authors would hearken back to this judgment when speaking of future judgment. May desert tribes bow down before him and his enemies lick the dust. Psalm 72, 9. With their faces to the ground they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Isaiah forty-nine twenty-three. Future messianic elements to both. But again, here we have the literal bowing down with the figurative licking the dust to drive the posture change home. This is a permanent alteration of nature all the days of your life. The curse applies to the serpent and all his descendants. Hamilton translates cursed as banned, though Wenham does not agree we could say he is banned from the cattle and beasts of the field he becomes this weird creature set apart from the rest made to be lowly and lonely as we referenced uh, moses would label him detestable whatever goes on its belly you shall not eat for they are detestable leviticus 11:42 the serpent deceived to eat. He was made to eat, and later he is not to be eaten. The serpent, once more crafty than any other beast of the field, is now more cursed than them all, eating dust in humiliation. Curse is the opposite of bless. Close relationship or band, blessed in activity and nature or cursed. Curse is judgment. For transgression. God uses government to punish evil with evidence of wrong in court but secret and hidden transgressions can be dealt with by God through curse. That God announced this judgment means the effect is guaranteed. Isaiah indicates that even in the future kingdom the curse will be removed from all animals but not so for the serpent. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together, the lion shall eat straw like the ox, and the dust shall be the serpent's food, Isaiah 65, 25. The serpent remains a living prostrated symbol of God's judgment, at least in the millennial reign. Verse 15 is referred to as the Proto-Evangelium, meaning the first good news. Let me read this again. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel." This is the germination of messianic prophecy. Firstly, I will, God will. God will put enmity or hostility between the serpent and the woman, and their offspring. This is not a prophecy about man killing snakes and snakes plaguing man, although their weirdness and their creepiness is a reminder. I recall the night that I slept uh, on the sofa in my friend's living room. It was one of the worst night sleeps of my life because in this same room was a glass box that contained his pet python. (laughs) And what's more is it repeatedly got out of its box, like daily, so as you can imagine, I kept on waking throughout the night to check if it it was still in its box. So creepy they are because of the curse, but the meaning is far greater. Both serpent and man acted together against God, and so now God will turn them against each other. Not just the couple and the serpent, their offspring. This word offspring, as it's translated in the ESV, or seed as it's also commonly translated, is understood in two senses. The word is frequently used in the Old Testament for the immediate offspring. The grammar indicates an individual is involved. The singular pronoun construct of both the woman's seed and the serpent's seed imply individuals are the target. In several passages, the word is a collective, referring to distant offspring or a large group of descendants, which is why it is translated as offspring in many translations. Therefore, the seed or offspring can refer to immediate or distant offspring, singular or collective, one or many. Like the English for seed or or offspring, the Hebrew singular can mean both one and or many. We understand this as both individual and representative of a group of descendants. This is the beginning of two people groups represented by two individuals, those who trust in and abide by God's word and those who trust in and abide by the words of the serpent. Satan thought that he could persuade all mankind to follow him, but a division means that only some will follow him. When it comes to the seed of the woman, the Septuagint translates as her seed and the Latin Vulgate as her sperm. And so many have picked up on this oxymoron and applied it to the virgin birth. Now others see this as a bit of a stretch, as though we're expounding not the original language but, but translations with interpretive spin. But it is it is the seed of the woman, even if it's metaphorical, which is curious because the seed is always traced through the male line. Genealogies follow the male line throughout Genesis, so there is an, there is an, an implication that this seed is special, as if without a biological father. From the canon of scripture, Isaiah would later confirm that a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And we recognize Jesus, born of a virgin, is the promised seed. And it's incredibly interesting the way the Septuagint translates this verse, indicating a messianic interpretation, long before Christ. These translators, and no doubt the biblical authors, understood more than we tend to give them credit for. Is Moses aware of what he is writing? For our hermeneutic to be solid and ensure that we're not reading into the text that which is not there, did Moses really intend both the corporate, collective, and messianic, individual meaning? Well, Moses will have recognised that he was part of the promised corporate offspring, the people of Israel. He would go on to develop the significance of the seed. His description of the heel coming down on the serpent means he also understood that an individual would be eventually crushed by an individual. Moses was fully aware of the concept of the one and many. He understands Adam, the same word for man, was both an individual and representative of mankind. Moses goes on to emphasise the seed of Abraham, a seed that will reverse the curse of the fall. Paul would later confirm that Moses' use of the seed was not plural but collective singular, pointing to one who represents many. He was aware of the idea of a messianic individual who is the leader of a people who will eventually defeat the serpent, the wicked leader of a people after generational struggle. That Moses pays great attention to the genealogies in Genesis shows he's documenting the lines from this first couple in anticipation of the promised seed. What's more is that Moses characterizes individuals as new Edamic figureheads Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, could it be this one or that one, foreshadows, but not yet. He's building up to the climactic entrance of Messiah. We can trace the seed in scripture throughout the first two and a half thousand years of history because Moses develops the motive throughout Genesis and indeed the rest of the Torah. Moses, the one who the Lord used to speak to face to face, as a man speaks to his friend, far from ignorant, was theologically aware, and therefore our hermeneutic, which attempts to follow the biblical author's hermeneutic, stands. The verb translated in the ESV as bruise is used twice in verse 15 because it is essentially the same Hebrew word. Now some translations, such as the NIV, use crush for the first instance and strike for the second. To be consistent, Hamilton says, whichever word we choose, it should be translated the same. Now on occasion, as others do, I refer to Jesus as the serpent crusher. And crush fits well with a leg stamping on the head of a serpent. But a serpent does not crush the heel of a leg. It may strike or bruise the heel, but it doesn't crush the heel also the translation crush would imply the serpent's injuries are fatal but the strike on the heel is not which is sort of true of the final outcome but not true to the individual words employed here if that makes sense the esv the nasb the king james etc use bruise twice bruise, although a verb, can be an adjective describing the outcome of the strike, whereas strike is a verb that speaks of intention and leaves open the outcome. Hamilton concludes with strike as the most appropriate term for both. The NLT uses a pair of strikes. Wenham translates both as batter, arguing that the imperfect verb is iterative, implying repeated attacks by both sides to injure the other, which is an interesting insight. We recognise a pair of bruises or strikes, and we also have contrasts of head and heel, and he and you. The phrase ends with the serpent striking the heel. Does this mean the serpent wins? They both strike at each other, so. Is it a draw? We must look at the picture as a whole. The serpent is being cursed, not the man who represents the seed of the woman. His curse means he's now flat on the ground while the man stands tall. The serpent can only bite the man's heel, whereas the man can crush the serpent's head with his foot. His humiliation to eat dust points to the future total defeat of the serpent so it's good to zoom in on each word but also good to stand back and look at the big picture as a whole we have identified the seed of the woman as jesus the son of god whose father is heavenly and not biological the bruise of the heel was the crucifixion it seems like the end but the empty tomb demands it is not The fact that we are driven to dig into the text to answer, Who is the seed? is really the point. To raise the question in all of our minds, Who is the promised seed? Who is the woman? Though the seed will come through the line of Adam's wife, and sometimes we can jump to Mary as the woman, the Old Testament frequently pictures Israel as the woman. And as we'll read in a moment, Revelation 12 pictures the people of Israel as a woman who gave birth to and are represented by the promised seed, Christ Jesus. The letter to the Galatians highlights the meaning of the word offspring with regards to the covenant with Abraham. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ, Galatians 3.16. God made the promise to Abraham and his offspring, his family. There is only one family of God who will receive the promises. Abraham's seed singular is Christ and all those in him are part of Abraham's seed. So technically, the woman, throughout scripture, is symbolic of the people of Israel. Jesus is the seed singular, and the collective seed is faithful Israel, with faithful Gentiles grafted in, who are the family of God. Because, as Paul goes on to say, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. The serpent, in the form of, or possessed by Satan, represents sin and the power of death and evil, but there's more than that. Who is the seed of the serpent? It is none other than the Antichrist, the in place of Christ, the in place of Messiah, the one who will present himself as saviour to the world, but is the seed of the ancient serpent. The Antichrist could be a man who is possessed by Satan in the same way he may have possessed a serpent in the garden and his possession of Judas Iscariot who was called the son of perdition as a foreshadow of the Antichrist. Yet there is another possibility alluded to here in Genesis 3.15. Arnold Frutenbaum comments that this contains an implication of a supernatural conception on the part of Satan that will produce the Antichrist. Like the Messiah, the Antichrist will not have a, have a natural human father, he says. He will be generated by Satan. In the days of Noah, fallen angels, the sons of God, came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them, called Nephilim, that's Genesis 6. In a similar fashion, Satan himself could lay with a woman and produce a half human, half angel being, the seed of Satan born of a woman. If Jesus returns in our lifetimes, then this half human, half angel being, the son of Satan, may be alive today, hidden until the proper time. God comes in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, born a man who is representative of the corporate offspring of Israel and those who follow him. Satan comes in the person of his son, Antichrist, born a man representative of his corporate offspring, his followers. In the years to come, choose your saviour wisely. There will be a choice of God's seed or the serpent's seed. A choice of saviours in a seed born of women with very different fruit and very different destinies. Adam was supposed to subdue the beast but he himself was subdued by the beast, the serpent. The promise is that the seed would one day subdue the beast. When you consider this judgment on the serpent in the garden, this is the Son of God speaking to Satan, telling him, one day I will crush you. If he returns in our lifetime, he is effectively saying, I will judge your seed in 6,000 years, throw you into the pit for the millennium, and 7,000 years from now, I will throw you in the lake of fire where I threw your son. Think about that. The fallen world is bookended by humble posture toward the Son of God, the serpentine creature of the Garden and the Dragon of Revelation, the posture change and the final crushing of his head. Redemptive history between these bookends sees a battle that rages between offspring who follow Satan's ways and offspring who follow God's ways a battle of kingdoms, the climatic events of the battle being the striking or bruising of both. From this moment, Satan began to wait for the anointed seed. From this point on, he would look to extinguish the seed before it had a chance to grow. The patriarchs, Israel, the Jewish Jesus, this was the beginning of anti-Semitism. In the UK, there is confused theology surrounding Israel's place within God's plans of redemption. It may be in germ form, but here is God declaring the end from the beginning, as it says in Isaiah 46.10. To follow the plot, we must follow the seed, the offspring. We will follow the seed through the Torah and beyond, and here are some highlights. The offspring, both plural and singular, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The individual who will crush the forehead of Moab, Numbers 24. David was promised, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom, 1 Samuel 7. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. Psalm 89. Paul to the Corinthians, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet, subjection under his feet. To the Romans, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Through death, bruise, he might destroy, bruise, the one who has the power of death, that is the devil." Hebrews 2. Revelation 12 depicts the battle between the dragon or serpent and the woman's offspring the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child he might devour it she gave birth to a male child one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron but her child was caught up to god and to his throne and the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by god He goes on, Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. He was defeated. The dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring and those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Satan the beast. His seed, the Antichrist, is a beast. His empires are symbolised as a beast. Satan has gone from serpent to enraged dragon, from beast of the field to beast of the whole earth. We are reminded in chapter 20, those who had not worshipped the beast or its image reigned with Christ for a thousand years ultimately the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever it's a fatal blow the picture moses paints in one verse is of a man whose leg comes down to stamp on the serpent's head the serpent strikes the heel causing a temporary bruise the man then pulls up the heel momentarily but then comes down a second time crushing the head of the serpent this moving picture tells the story of the gospel from beginning to end including the two comings of messiah From the beginning, God is committed to redeem his creation, a plan to save and redeem God's image-bearers and reconcile to himself all things, reversing the curse on creation, the details of which Adam and his wife can only imagine. A promise of reversal before judgment. Satan takes the land, goes after the people, then stops them becoming a blessing. Sound familiar? The Abrahamic covenant is a promised reversal of this. Each covenant throughout the story of the Bible gives more insight as to how God will go about restoring the earth unto the kingdom of God. We can note from the start, if a man was established as head of family, priest-king of Eden, head of humanity, then the promised seed must be a man, and a man who will restore the image of God distorted by man, defeating Satan's rule and grip on the earth. One man must win the battle and subdue the earth and all that dwells upon it it reveals he is a god who is both wrathful and merciful of kindness and severity gracious and truthful a god of justice adam and his wife were gifted everything perfect home perfect father great prestige overflowing produce harmonious vocation and relationships yet they sinned against the gift giver and yet God offered them a path for salvation those who repent are given hope those who persist in rebellion will meet the fate of their father the serpent of interest in the millennial kingdom the serpent will remain cursed in locomotion but the serpent will no longer be a threat "...the nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den." Isaiah 11.8 They will symbolise Satan's humiliation of being thrown down the pit, unable to cause hurt. Now some see what took place as an unconditional covenant of grace with those represented by the promised seed and if so it's unusual that he would be speaking to the enemy rather than a man whom he calls to walk blameless with him. Having said that there is reason to believe that the man and his wife were stood by witnessing this judgment and receiving the promise embedded in the judgment. And we'll come back to this covenant in the next session. However we categorise it, promises have been made and a programme has been initiated in Genesis 3. A programme for mankind to salvage the mediatorial kingdom of God that is characterised by war, rebellion and salvation through violent means. The key is the seed, the Messiah, who will eventually win the battle of the seeds, dealing with man's problem of sin. From Genesis 3 to Revelation 20, the serpent, the devil, wages war against God. We have just two chapters either side acting as redemptive, programmatic Bookends. The creation of the heavens and the earth, including the Garden of Eden, Genesis 1 and 2, and the creation of a new heavens and new earth with its new Eden, Revelation 21 and 22. The Lord then turns to the woman. The woman was not said to be cursed like the serpent, nonetheless, her personal punishment was twofold. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. Or as the NIV translates, your desire will be for your husband. Without sin, birth would have been a straightforward, painless experience. The first part of this verdict on her sin means a physical change in the woman's anatomy. She would now feel the full pain of childbirth. I sat through the birth of my children. (laughs) It's not fun for anyone, it feels like a punishment on the husband too. (laughs) The woman chose to independently step out and open herself up to the world and therefore she will now feel nature without the protective covering of the Lord. She was commanded to multiply and now her pain will multiply in the process of multiplication. Hamilton says, at the point in her life when a woman experiences her highest sense of self-fulfillment, according to Old Testament emphasis, she will have some physical anguish. Frutenbaum translates it as, I will greatly multiply your pain and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. He comments that it is not just birth pains, but monthly menstrual pain, woman would now suffer. He argues that women would now menstruate every month as opposed to originally less frequently, reasoning the increase in in potential conception is necessary to populate the earth in the face of physical death that will limit human populace. I see his point, but I'm not so sure. She will feel pain, but is promised she will carry a child and give birth, promise, through pain. God could have cursed her such that her womb was permanently closed but the promise of the seed of the woman remains. The pain is both a reminder of the fall and grace in the promised seed. Jesus would point to the pain of childbirth to teach about sufferings in this age before the joy to come. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. John 16, 21. With the symbolic imagery of a woman as Israel, Jesus would teach of the birth pains at the end of the age. The birth pains of a woman are symbolic of the climax of this age, suffering before glory. This new physical state will teach us about times of pain before birth of the new heavens and new earth, and for Israel, national rebirth. The second part of the sentence on the woman regards her relationships. From now on, the woman shall desire, depending on the translation, the woman shall desire the authority of her husband. She will fight from his covering and continue to not be in submission. The meaning of this phrase pivots on the word desire. The Hebrew word is only used on two other occasions throughout the Old Testament. In the Song of Solomon it refers to sexual desire, but that wouldn't make sense here. She already desired her husband because he is attractive, they already desired each other in that sense. What's more is that this is a different author writing centuries later. It's more than that. The other use of the Hebrew for desire is in the following chapter, Genesis 4, 7. is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Without straying into our Genesis 4 teaching, here we see sin's desire for man, but the need to resist those urges. Cain's emotional state meant that he was an easy target for crouching sin, like a lion ready to pounce. Cain should fight the desire to sin. Sin is not to rule over you, but you must rule over it. The desire of the woman is a sinful desire like that of the desire of sin crouching at Cain's door. She will desire the authority of her husband and seek to rule him, a desire to tamper with God's ordained design and roles within the relationship. Harmony with crouching sin can become severe discordance. As a team, they were called to rule the world, but now they would try to rule each other. In dialogue with the serpent, she assumed the authority of her husband, and now her sentence means she will continually desire her husband's authority and want to rule over him. She will have a tendency to refuse to be under the mission of her husband, jockeying for position and authority, but she must rule over these urges. Wenham notes, evidently, he, Moses, does not regard female subordination to be a judgment on her sin. On the contrary, she must rule over her sin that sees her remove herself from such subordination. Her role in marriage remains the same. A desire for independence apart from her husband and apart from God is the beginning of feminism. Feminism today is symptomatic of the fall. It is one thing to desire equality of value in society, it is another to rage against male authority in a man-hating fashion. And sadly, feminism dressed in egalitarian clothing is now deeply embedded within the Western Church, rehearsing the prophecies of the Garden rather than seeking God's divine creation order but he shall rule over you the man will continue to be your covering nothing changes regarding god's order the curse brought distortion of original roles not new ones the curse did not change ordained roles between the sexes the man's authority remains but there is a hint that now he will lord it over her in an overly dominant way There is with this statement a certain force in its understanding, implying almost as if he will abuse his position. And here begins the battle between the sexes. They became one flesh and now, in judgment, they will tear each other apart. The woman was originally naturally more sensitive than Adam, but as a result of the fall, men suffer from insensitivity and women hypersensitivity. Men can swing from extremes of leadership from aggression to passivity. Women will swing from being a pushover to, and more likely, have the tendency to usurp his authority. Today, common phrases such as, she wears the trousers, he's under the thumb, attest to this truth. We don't have to search far to see the sexual, physical, emotional, psychological abuse from both sexes, which is to act out on and develop upon these tendencies. Adam and his wife would have to work hard at their marriage. A relationship of service, helper and sacrifice would be turned into fighting for authority, domination and the rest of it. Feminism is an outworking of 6,000 years of this struggle. Chauvinism is an outworking of 6,000 years of this struggle. Understand the original design. Understand what went wrong. Diagnose the issues in your relationship, rule over your sin, and live by the original ordained order. Considering the primary fall tendencies to desire and lord over, Paul would go on to explicitly teach the original order for wives to submit to husbands and husbands to love their wives. The answer is never to forge our own order, but return to God's original order and economy of man. Let's wrap up this first session. God spoke to the woman as woman. Her judgment is personal. The woman was blessed in marriage and blessed to multiply and now she will receive pain in both areas. The blessings of life will be seen through pain. What is clear is that sin has consequences. Adam was warned and it is true. This is, as Hamilton states, a classical outline of salvation history. God acts and speaks. Man rebels, God punishes, God protects and reconciles. The woman represents the bride of Christ who will be saved.